Father God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you that you put breath in our lungs. Lord, we thank you that, um, that what that says to us is that you have a purpose for us to fulfill. Lord, we ask in this time that you would open our hearts and our minds to the things that you have to communicate to us as we understand that this time on earth is not wasted, that it is not best spent sitting on our hands waiting for the day you call us all home, but that it is best spent active. Lord, you brought us here for your spirit to speak to us collectively and individually. So, Lou, we ask that we would, not a single person who leaves this place would leave without knowing full well that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, has spoken directly and intimately to us. Lord, I pray that you would allow the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth to be holy and acceptable to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All who believe say, bless up. So this morning, uh, this morning, these weeks are always bittersweet for me because we come to the conclusion of a series. And that's exciting for my personality on one hand because that means next week we start something new and I love starting new things. But that also means that we come to the end of something we've been really intent on getting into. And so if you haven't been with us, let me encourage you. Uh, there's no way that you can't possibly catch up. I mean, you can't like right this second, but once you leave here, you can 100% catch up because everything uh, that we do on Sunday morning is posted on YouTube by Tuesday. And, and it's probably on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, maybe even before that. And at worst case, if it, that's all too confusing for, for you, uh, you can just follow us on social media or go to our website, thirdstreetchurch.com, and it'll give you all the links right there. And so you can catch up. You can catch up and realize that we've been in this series called The Hills. Church, say The Hills. The Hills. Ah, there we go. See, I told you, we're coming along. So we've been in this series called The Hills, and this morning uh, we, we conclude, and we've been, we've been on quite a journey, right? KT kicked us off a few weeks ago reminding us about the hill that Jesus died on, that he did not die just for the sake of a cool story, but that he died for a purpose, that there were things that he didn't have to do the way that he did, but he did so that the purpose would be fulfilled. He died on the hill that he died on, on purpose. And so for us as a church, as we await glory, but live in light of the resurrection of the dead, there are particular hills, if you will, that we as a church shall die on. And I just wanted, as we begin this season of regathering after a long, scattered season, I just wanted to be clear about what it is, like what are those hills that we as a church die on? And so the first hill we talked about dying on is the hill of unity. What I mean by that is, is, is it's a recognition that we are many people from many different backgrounds, with many different experiences, but the one thing that is able to unite all of us is not politics. Somebody should have said amen right there. 
unless that's brand new information to you. In other words, wake up, 2020 was last couple months ago. It's not education. It's not cool backyard barbecues. The one thing that is capable of bringing us all together as one people is the banner of the family of Jesus Christ. Week two, we talked about dying on the hill of renewal. It's this idea that I don't care where you've been, what you have done, what it is about you or about your circumstances that is completely shattered and broken. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that to all people who come to him, you are made new. I know somebody in here has wanted a fresh start before. Somebody in here has maybe found themselves at ground zero when they didn't intend to be there and they've wondered if they have it in them to rebuild. What Jesus says is that when you come to me, you are a new creation. Thank God for Jesus because you get to look at the past that got you to where you are and say, I'm genuinely not that person anymore. Whether social media will let you forget it or not, whether your friends and family will let you forget it or not, whether your ex will let you forget it or not, you get to say, thank God for Jesus because I'm genuinely not that person anymore. This week, this week, in case you didn't catch the themes, is our last hill. The hill that we die on this week is the hill of restoration. Can somebody say restore? Restore. All right. We're getting better. I love it. Restore. If you look up restore, you're going to see that restore means to bring back. To reinstate. To repair, uh-huh. to return. Yes. See, we believe, I know, I, I know we do, I know we believe this at some level because you're sitting in this gym. If you're sitting in this gym at some level, you believe that God is not yet done with the city of Canton. Amen. Right? If you're sitting in this room, you believe fundamentally at your core, God is not done with the city of Canton. I actually know of a lot of people who are not in this room that also believe that. There are a lot of city planners that believe that. They wouldn't say it that way for sure, but they also believe that. I know a lot of people who are on uh, uh, co- coalitions or, or chairs of boards or all these things that, that, that genuinely don't believe that Canton is dead yet, but... As committees and initiatives continue to beautify particular areas of our city, crime continues to hit closer and closer to home, doesn't it? Yes, it does. The education system continues to get more and more confusing, doesn't it? (laughs) Those who are in need of a come up still see no hope in sight and the brokenness of our people persists even though the brokenness of some of our buildings is repaired i don't claim to know the blueprint 
for what it's going to take. Well, most days I don't. Some days I totally do. But most days, I'll tell you, I don't know the blueprint. But I do know that from where I'm sitting, perhaps it's time that we give God's plan for our community a shot. Because if I know anything about the God that I serve, what I know is that his investment is not in brick and mortar, but is in the people that populate this earth. This morning, you can join me in the book of Ephesians. The very end of the book, we're going to chapter 6. If you have your physical Bibles with you, go ahead and turn there. But if your kids are on your electronic device and you don't have that available, feel free to look up here on the screen. We've got it for you. This is Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 10. We're just going to read a few verses together this morning. Because I promise you, that's all we're going to have time for. So this is Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Somebody needed me to read that again this morning. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We got a journey to take this morning, so I got to I got to go ahead and get right to it. This morning, I want us to get into the deeper context of what Paul is saying. See, it's easy for us to read this and, and, and read it at, at face value, but, but y'all been a part of Third Street for a minute, right? Most of y'all have been a part of Third Street for a minute, so you know that I'm going to warn you about the dangers of casual reading. Okay. The dangers of casual reading in this passage is going to say, Brace yourselves, get on your armor, get ready to fight and beat up the devil. And can I tell you, that's very problematic. Let's not get ready to go beat up the devil. That's not what we're talking about. Paul is speaking to a specific problem. He is reminding people of a specific vision. And he is requesting specific action. This morning in my three points, I want to take you through the problem. Say the problem. problem. I want to take you to the vision. Say the vision. vision. And I want to let you know the action. Say the the action. Here we go. Point one. This is the problem. Point one. We were made for Eden, but we're not in the garden. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, this is after God has created absolutely everything. God created the heavens, the earth. God formed the earth. God made water. God made land. God made creatures. God made vegetation to sprout up from the land. God stepped back from all of creation, and he's like, that's dope. Then in the pinnacle of creation, in the climax of the account, if you will, God creates human. He creates human in his own image, which means everything that he created is good. Everything exists in perfect harmony. But if anything you should be able to look at to remind you of what God is like, it's human. And he says, I'm going to make this in my, in my image. Genesis 2.8 tells us, and the Lord planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God had made of all creation a special place. You've heard the Garden of Eden, yeah? And that is where he had placed man. And then right after that we read where God says that of everything I created, everything is good. Eh, except for one thing. You know what that one thing is? You know you can't trust no man by himself. You should not trust a man by himself in the grocery store. You should not trust a man by himself fixing the car even though he says he knows what he's doing. You should not trust a man by himself when he's home alone for three days because you're going out of town. You should not trust a man by himself. God looked at creation and he's like, everything is good. Ah, but you, you need help. And so he creates woman. And in a partnership, he sets them up to rule over the beautiful harmony that he had created. That's in Genesis 2.8. You look no further than Genesis 3.23 to read, Therefore the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they were taken. In one short chapter, man and woman went from being set up for life to exist and rule in perfect harmony to being kicked out of the garden. What had happened in between is that we let sin and evil come in our yard. We let sin and evil get in our yard and rather than stand firm in the garden and say, I know God trusted me with this creation and I know he did not ordain it for you to be coming in here and speaking to me the way that you're speaking. Rather than keep God's perfect order and tell the devil to tell the serpent to get out, we entertained it. We let evil slither into our yard, and we lost it. Now, that doesn't change the fact that we were made for it. It just means we're not in it. And from that point forward, the earth became a playground for the evil one to steal people away from God-ordered and God-ordered structure. Harmony, 
It became a playground for the evil one to steal people away and to create their own structure, to create their own order that is ultimately extremely flawed because it is not in the original designs or intentions of the creator, but in the selfish ambition of the ones who turned away. Look no further than the rest of the story of the Old Testament where the Israelites who have been delivered from so much slavery, war, famine, they made it through it all. God kept them through it all. And he sets them up and he's like, here you get to be my people. And they're like, okay, cool. Can we have a king and a government? And he's like, no, no. And they're like, but everybody else has one. Everybody else gets a king. Everybody else gets a government. Man, famous last words, right? Like everybody else, all the cool countries have them. Can we have them? God's like, man, knock yourself out. But just know that that's not my intention. We built structures. We built systems that were not made in the image of God. They were made in the selfish image of man. And so they're flawed. Now when we get to Ephesus, this, the city to which Paul is writing in the passage we read this morning, when we get there, we're reading his letter to a port city. Port cities were, were built uh, just off of the water. They were important for transporting goods and services, and they were important for military defense, which means the central values of this city is economy and military. That's at the core values of the city, economy and military. Then you'll also find that in the other parts of the city, you have a stadium and a theater, and the rest of the town is built around those things, and there are shrines built in the city for famous athletes and famous actors. I don't really feel like I want to take the time to connect dots for you. Perhaps Ephesus had an annual enshrinement ceremony for said famous athletes or potentially famous actors. I don't know. I'm not trying to like. The city also had big, beautiful terraces, big, beautiful homes for the few people in the city that were really wealthy, while the overwhelming majority of the city were a part of the servant class. While, the, while a small population experienced the first fruits of economy and military the majority of the population in the city were the ones working and cleaning. And seeing all this, knowing all of this, Paul writes back to this city about God being the source of power, about God being over all of the structures whether you're on the top of the structure or the bottom of the structure, Paul writes about God being bigger than that. He preached about people from diverse backgrounds in a transient community being able to come together as one people in the kingdom. Paul explicitly writes about the idea 
that neither your money nor your work can save you, but the grace of Jesus. Paul explicitly speaks to this community about submission to one another. As opposed to this power-hungry structure where we push some down in order to lift ourselves up. The context of the passage in Ephesians is the total depravity and full realization of what it means to have man and the evil one at the helm of building our systems that inform the way we live. Let me ask you a question. That was great. Let me ask you a question. What area of your life, what area of your world that you regularly see makes it most evident to you that we are no longer in the garden? What area of your life or area of your world makes it most evident to you that we are no longer in the garden? Perhaps it's as you drove on the way here and you see the blatant and evident housing inequality that we have in our city. Perhaps you find it in the way that our schools are or aren't funded. Perhaps you see it in the way that the quality of education you get on one side of the street is not equal to the quality of education you get just on the other side of the street. Perhaps you see it in the fact that we lead all but one city in the country in childhood poverty. Perhaps it's more specific than that. Perhaps you see it in your own home. You see the way your kids speak to other people. You see the way your relationship with your spouse is supposed to be, but it's not quite. Maybe you experience it in the death and the loss of a loved one. You realize how deeply painful it is to experience death. And you can't help but wonder, how is this possible? How is this a part of God's plan? There's a longer answer to that, but the simple answer to that is that it wasn't. This isn't the way it was going to be in the garden. But because we're not in the garden, we are now in the bondage of decay. And as much as we're able to recognize and hate these things, God hates them more. It's not the way that God meant for it to be. But God gives a hopeful vision of what we can look forward to. He gives a hopeful vision for us to fix our eyes on now. Point two, we look forward to a new earth. You remember when you were learning to drive? I don't know if you were, but I was tempted to like look at where the car was lined up. And when you look just at what's right in front of you, what does that cause you to do when you're driving? 
right? You're going all over the place. If I'm looking over here, guess where I'm steering the car all of a sudden? If I'm looking over here, guess where I'm steering the car? What are you supposed to do? Look up. Look out. And then you're able to steer straight. God gives us this type of vision in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. He tells us that the old world eventually will pass away, that everything is in the bondage of decay, that eventually all of this stuff will fall off, and there is a new world on the horizon. There is a new heaven. There is a new earth. There is a new place that God is bringing in where he gets to walk with his people. When's the last time that you saw God walk with his people? In the Garden of Eden, but that's for free. God is building us and working us towards a day where everything is made new, where all of creation is new. And the text tells us that he will wipe away every tear. In other words, death will be absent from this new world. Pain will be absent from this new world. Sorrow and mourning will be absent from this new world. There is a new hope on the horizon. Paul writes in the book of Colossians, he says, fix your eyes on these things. Fix your gaze. Stay focused on. Don't look left. Don't look right. But watch the horizon where that new world is coming. Focus on the things above. Don't focus on the things that are of earth. What I come to tell you this morning is that we now have eternal truths that we get to hold on to because the eternal truths that we will someday experience but that also speak to our present circumstances. What is the eternal truth that you need to hear that speaks to your current circumstance? I can't help but think of all my years hanging out and playing basketball in this gym. I can't think about how many times we asked the question or, or made the statement, raise your hand if you have grown up with both your biological father and your biological mother in the home with you. And in all of our years, of playing basketball in this gym and asking that question, never once did we get a raised hand. There is a problem with the way we've set our world up. There is a problem with the system that we as man implore. And what that broken system communicates is that it's okay to break off covenantal relationships. It's that it's okay we have, we've communicated through our broken systems that you as a child do not matter, that you are abandoned, that it's okay if you only experience part of the fullness of what God intended for you to experience. But the eternal truth that we get to speak into our kids is that you are chosen. You are not abandoned. Amen. That you were made for more than the chains your eighth grade teacher told you you were destined for. Amen. We get to speak that eternal truth. Yeah. 
What is the eternal truth that speaks to your current condition? And so what's happening in Ephesians is the world is realizing the full consequence of our man-made systems and ideals. And Paul's telling us, Paul's instructing us, reminding us to fix our gaze of things above. But there is instruction, isn't there? There is an action that we have to take. The reality in Ephesus and our reality today is not unlike the reality in World War II. In World War II, there was a battle between the Allies and the Axis power, Axis powers being led by Hitler's Nazi Germany, the Allies, as our history tells us, being the good guys. They would band together and form this strategy of this strike that we famously remember and call it D-Day. On D-Day, the Allies knew that if they were able to reach the shores of Normandy, then it was a wrap. The Allies knew if they could breach the shores of Normandy, the rest was over. The war would have effectively been won. On June 6, 1944, the Allies breached the shores. And most experts will tell you that day the war was won. June 6, 1944. However, the official end of World War II did not come until September 2nd, 1945. And in that 14, 16, whatever it was, month period, between Normandy and the actual end of the war, more lives were lost in that period than at any other period of the war. What I mean to tell you is that Jesus has already breached the shores of hell. Jesus has already conquered. Jesus has already won. Jesus has effectively said, it's a wrap. There's nothing the enemy can do to take this dub away. There's nothing that can be done. And yet, we are losing more lives to the systems and the structures that the enemy encourages. Let me say it another way. January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into full legal effect. January 1st, 1863, all who found themselves in bondage, all who found themselves in slavery in this country, the United States of America, were set free. January 1st, 1863, you are no longer allowed to own slaves. But we celebrate Juneteenth. We celebrate June 19th, 1865. Now somebody who's paying attention just did the math and said that's two and a half years later. What happened in those two and a half years? If the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect January 1st, 1863, why were the last slaves not set free? Therefore, we celebrated on June 19th in, memor in remembrance of 1865. What happened in those two and a half years? I'll tell you what happened. What happened was in the state of Texas, there were not enough 
troops who bought into the new law to enforce it at all. There were not enough people who were willing to stand their ground in Texas and say, "Uh uh-uh, this is against the law. This is over. This is the past. People are set free. There were not enough people who were willing to stand firm on setting people free, thus causing slavery to continue in Texas for two and a half more years until there was a change of power at the highest level. Until the old commander-in-chief was kicked out of his position, a new commander-in-chief came in and said, we ain't playing this game no more. Fans, we are in that time period. We are in that time period where God has already said, he's already declared the victory. He's already said it's over. He's already said you're free from your chains. But there's too many of us being fans of Jesus and not enough people being soldiers for Jesus that are we're sitting here and letting people stay in bondage. There's not enough of us standing our ground and saying, I believe that Jesus has set you free. I believe that these chains are a thing from yesterday. I believe that in this plot of land right here, the Lord intended freedom. There's not enough of us saying that. And so people were still in chains for two and a half more years. Point three. We stand against evil. Let me say it another way. We stand against anything that does not bring hope. This text tells us to be strong in the Lord. Rely on the Lord's strength. Can I tell you something real quick about the Lord's strength? There hasn't ever been a being. There has not ever been a system. There will not ever be a power that can go over the great strength of what he has already exhibited. There is nothing that can stop him. There is nothing that can defeat him. There is nothing that can put their agenda over his. So Paul says, I'm talking about that strength. How does that apply to your life, knowing that the strength of the Lord for those who believe is within you? There is nothing that can tell you. There's nothing that can trump you. There's nothing that can bury you when you rely on the strength of the Lord. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. He talks about wearing truth like it's a belt. He talks about wearing salvation like it's your helmet. He talks about wearing righteousness on your chest like you have reason to be confident in it. He talks about the only weapon you need in this sword is what I've inspired to be written down. That's all you need. And what he doesn't say is take that sword and go cut somebody's ear off, Peter. What he doesn't say is take that sword and bury it in the ground. He says, stand firm. Our war he goes on, is not against flesh and blood. Some of y'all got some apologizing to do because our war 
is not against flesh and blood. But the systems and spiritual forces taking lives from the Lord. In the original Greek, there are three words Paul uses to describe our enemy. The first one he uses in this passage is arche. Arche are the positions of authority as are within a government, an empire, or a ruling system. Guys, I don't have time this morning to talk about how the church has been guilty of championing RK rather than challenging RK. I don't have time this morning. Y'all need to let me move on to, to, to get into all the ways that we've been championing positions of government, championing positions of authority within this empire we call America rather than challenging it. I don't have time to get there today, but just know that it's explicitly there in Ephesians 6. I got to move on. The second word he uses is, is exousia. Yeah. Exousia speaks to the spiritual authority. He talks about the fact that there is a very literal spiritual war, that there is a war that is unseen going on that is influencing decisions, that is playing their little strategic games in order to take people away from the Lord. He says, stand against that very real spiritual enemy. And then the last word that he uses is cosmokratos, which means a demonic power that is ordering the world's systems. He's talking about the enemy. He's talking about the devil. He's like, look, the devil wants to take you away from me. And he believes that as long as you're in this world, it's possible. And so he is enforcing, he is informing the way we structure and order our world to be different than what I originally intended so that you won't get to me. Amen. But the Lord's strength and his victory are evident. Let me put it to you this way, and then I'm out your way. I went to a workshop once on how to peacefully protest. I'm not going to tell you what I was doing there or what even put me in that room. That's a hilarious story for another time, but that's what it turned out to be. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't know that's what it was, but that's what it turned out to be. It's a workshop on how you peacefully protest, and this woman broke it down like this. She said, she said uh, there, are, there are three ways, right, to do this. She said, let me put it in terms of violence. There's pro, non, and anti. There's pro-violence, there's non-violence, and there's anti-violence. She says pro-violence is arms extended. Pro-violence says I'm looking for a fight. Pro-violence says I'm going to go get you. Pro-violence says I'm coming to attack. Nonviolence is hands down, and you say, I refuse to use violence. You can come this way. You can take as much ground as you want because no matter what you do to me, I will not retaliate. My hands are down. Then she says, There's anti violence. Anti violence is like this with your hands up, it shows that. I don't want to be violent. I'm not coming with the intent of fighting you. But you ain't coming no closer. I'm standing my ground. Amen. Family, 
we as the church have gotten this all jacked up. We take this passage and we make it, we take a pro stance and we go on the offensive and we attack, never minding the fact that every bit of the armor minus one piece is meant for defense. And that one piece is scripture. I see y'all's Facebook feeds. I see a lot of y'all using the scripture as a weapon. I see a lot of people going on the offensive. I see a lot of people going on an attack in Jesus' name. But all you're doing is attacking flesh and blood when you do it that way. I see a lot of people taking a non-approach. There's a lot of church folk that are sitting on their hands. There's a lot of church folk that in order to keep peace and love, they're just sitting down. But what they're doing is they're letting the enemy take their ground. They're letting the enemy determine how we live because no matter what you do, I'm not going to pick my hands up. And we justify our silence as peace, but it's just us not wanting to stir the pot. It's just us wanting to avoid those hard conversations. It's just us not wanting to stand firm on spiritual convictions. And so we allow those who are willing to take ground to determine the way we live, to determine the things we're tolerant of, to determine all of the ways that this place is going to be structured and ordered But what Paul says in this passage, I believe, is I want you to take an anti-approach. I want you to be anti-evil. I believe God has placed you on this ground. Just as Jesus himself came. Where he said, I'm not going on the offensive. I'm not looking to take this land back from Caesar. There were disciples who expected him to march up to Rome and take it back. He said, I'm not doing that. There were people who expected him to come by force and take the world. He said, I'm not doing that. He said, but my feet are at where my feet are at, and the enemy's not allowed to come any closer. He said, I come to stand on this ground, and you ain't taking this ground from me. Somebody needs to realize that you have been placed where you've been placed by God. And I'm not telling you to go on the offensive and attack somebody, but you got to stop letting the evil one slither into your yard. You got to stand your ground and stop letting the enemy determine the way that you live your life. You've got to understand that in your family, in your house, at 1253 3rd Street Southeast, God has put your feet there to say, "Uh uh-uh. To the enemy, you're not coming in here. That's so true. You're not coming in here. I believe that as a church, yes. it is our God-ordained obligation Amen. to stand firm, 1253 Third Street Southeast, and make sure that none of that type of evil is slithering its way into where we're at. And to make sure, as a matter of fact, to puff our chests out just a little bit more and say, as a matter of fact, the enemy's not even welcome in this neighborhood. As a matter of fact, the enemy's not even welcome in this zip code. Uh Uh-uh, not happening. As long as me and my people got our feet on this land, the devil is not allowed to order the systems of this side of the city. We got work to do. 
we got work to do. So when I say restore, what I mean is to bring back the unity of people. It's to reinstate the peace God intended. It's to repair the broken relationships between people and God and people with each other. And to one day be able to return to Eden. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your strength. We thank you that you have placed us here for a reason and for a purpose. God, I pray that you bring to our minds where it is that you are asking us to be, to strongly stand firm. Lord, where is it that that you have placed our feet on purpose? That it is not put on us an expectation to attack, but to no longer allow the enemy to have ground that you have given to us. Lord, I pray for the courage to accompany that re- to accompany that revelation. Lord, I pray for the strength and the courage to stand firm, to stand your ground, to not let the enemy come any closer. God, I pray that the convictions of our heart would lead to the action of our hands and feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. All who believe say, bless up.